All right, so we continue to meditate on Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, and that's Luke 6 from verse 20 through the end of the chapter, and it's Luke's version of Matthew's Sermon on the Mount. And so both Luke and Matthew take a longer version. Jesus preached for much longer than Matthew or Luke indicate, and they take certain portions of it, select, shape, for the particular emphases that they feel burdened for, for the good of those in the original audience, which actually ends up including us too, that they really want to speak about and apply and help us grow in. So we get Luke's like emphases as he, as he takes some salient features of Jesus's sermon to apply them to us. And so in Jesus's sermon, he's presented as a king. Um, On the mountain, we saw in 17 through 19 that he gathers his disciples around him, this big group of disciples by this point, and he selects 12 apostles. And we ask, why on a mountain? And there's a number of reasons. Probably the most basic is that revolutionary movements tended to have their origin in mountains, in, in remote areas, because the leaders of them were hunted People. Jesus is making a statement here. He's starting a revolutionary movement. But even more than that, I think, he's wanting to identify himself with Moses. Moses, too, went up a mountain. He gathered then when he came down the 12 tribes. He formalized them into a nation. He declared to them God's will, and they were supposed to go out and bless the world as a people. And then he, even more so, I think he wants to identify himself with David. He's the true and greater King David, the real one, the one that David looked forward to. And so he is, as you recall, David in the stronghold, in the mountains. He gathered his followers around him. Then David became the king over the 12 tribes. He established a new and unique kind of kingship in the world through which God's people could bless the world. So Jesus is intentionally, purposefully, Uh, uh, upholding uh, what God had done in the past. He's saying, I'm building on it. I'm bringing to fulfillment all the gifts given to Israel in the past, the hopes of Israel, and the mission of Israel to transform the world, and all depended upon me. And so then in verse 20, he gives us blessed are the poor. And along with those beatitudes and woes, we see that his kingdom is totally different. It's an upside-down kingdom. What His people prize is different than what this world prizes. The world would say, blessed are the rich. That's the good life. And Jesus says, blessed are the poor for a host of reasons that we've already said. But the point is that it's a revolutionary upside down kingdom. He does things differently. His values are radically different than this world. His way of transforming the world is radically different than all the little kingdoms of our world. And those beatitudes aren't like these hurdles we jump over to win the race of life. They're not like tacklers we got to get through in order to make the touchdown of salvation. They're, They're not things we accomplish to get accepted with God. They're marks of what a kingdom member looks like. When King Jesus takes hold of us, we start start looking like this profile, this picture of what a person saved by grace starts looking like. And so this, today we're looking at how Jesus continues to uh, speak in this really amazing sermon. So 
I'm going to read then verse, verse 37 through 42. Jesus goes on in this sermon. His upside down kingdom, completely different from the world. He says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take out the speck that is in your eye, when you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. It's again remarkable. Remarkable, But even more amazing than this sermon is the person who speaks it. And really, that's even the greater point of this sermon. Like, who could speak like this? What does that say about Jesus? He's the true Moses, the true David. But the promises in this sermon are available to us only because of him. And the obedience required of us is only attainable through him. Like, we can't do this. This may be one of those passages where most we recognize that we can't do it. We need a redeemer. And so really behind this, we see gospel. And we're going to see that in a minute, that what Jesus must do in order to redeem us, to make us his people, empower us to live for the good of the world like this. So, we get in the sermon to this bold statement, judge not, and you will not be judged. I recently read, and I can't remember, I couldn't find it, but somewhere I read, maybe you've read something similar, that the last generation, the favorite Bible verse in our culture was the golden rule. So, people would say over and over again, you know, the Christian life is all about doing to others as you would have them do unto you. But then this writer said, today's favorite Bible verse is this one, judge not lest you be judged. And sounds about right, really. And so we ask, why do you think that may be the case? And what does Jesus mean by this? And how is this one of our values as Jesus's revolutionary upside down kingdom for the good of this world? So my outline's real simple, don't judge and be generous. Keep that in our mind. Don't judge and be generous. And before we get to don't judge, just recognize that in the original, um, judge isn't the first word of the verse. The first word of the verse is and. And the point is to connect this statement very closely with the prior statement. And the prior statement in verse 36 is, be merciful as your father is merciful. And so our father, I love a writer that said it this way, our father prefers to treat people with mercy. That's just his heart. He prefers to treat people with mercy. Praise God. So would it be said of us that we prefer, we incline towards treating people with mercy? Are we, are we a merciful people? 
Do, do we imitate our Father's mercy towards others? How do we imitate our Father's mercy? Well, right out of the gate, judge not. That's the first thing he says when he says, imitate your Father's mercy. Judge not. So, don't judge. First point. What does it mean? Well, let's first think about what it doesn't mean. So, there's three things I think it doesn't mean. And the first is, you know, Jesus doesn't abolish law courts. There have been people in the history of the church that said there shouldn't be a law court. So, Jesus is speaking about individual ethics. He's not speaking about the authorities and governmental institutions. He's talking about how you think, feel, and act. And these aren't about the authorities. In fact, what he would say here is that individuals don't treat people like the law court, and the law court doesn't treat people like you should do individually, like you want a law court. We're charged to love our enemies. So we see in Jesus' life that he submitted to the Jewish court system, amazingly, even though it was a kangaroo court, it was trumped up. And Paul charges us in Romans 13 to be subject to the governing authorities for they've been instituted not just as a convention of man, but by God to be God's servant. They're called God's servant and they bear the sword. And Paul speaks like that to governing authorities that just weren't good. Like it's the Roman, like the oppressive Roman government, amazingly, he speaks like that. So Jesus is not abolishing law courts here. Second, Jesus doesn't prohibit holding strong convictions. He's not saying just sit loose to everything. He's not countenancing vagary and vagueness and generalities in what you believe. That's not what he's doing here. Um, You and I aren't just to believe, meaning to assent and agree with the truth. It's not a bare assent. Like we don't come to church and think we're okay just because we say, yeah, it's true. The gospel's true. Faith is stronger than that. Faith is this wholehearted like love and cherishing and delight in the truth. In fact, Paul says in 2 Thessalonians, to be saved, we have to love the truth. Like, love it. And love, it's an aspect of faith. It's like the culminating point of faith where you say, it's not just true and good for me, it's something I want. Well, throughout the sermon, Jesus is setting himself up as the one we need. Like, he wants us to have strong convictions about him. Yet we live in this relativistic culture. We feel it all the time. And it asserts that especially in religious and moral matters, there's no objective transcendent truth. There's nothing that explains reality, that maps onto reality, that holds for all people everywhere. Like, that's seen as arrogant in our culture. So such truth is personal and private. It's democratized and trivialized. It's like you have your opinion, I have my opinion. Let's just part ways and agree to disagree. And so the the idea of this verse would be don't judge because there's really nothing to judge. Like we we aren't supposed to have strong convictions. There's no standard, no preference. I was watching the making of a Netflix show the other day and the writers were talking about the next season of the Netflix show. And they said, look, we aim in the next season to show that there's no right or wrong, it's just your perspective. And it was all applauded, like that was great, right? No right or wrong, just your perspective. And this aggressive cultural disposition tempts us therefore to like lose our own confidence in the truth. You know, there's an undermining aspect 
to that. And Jesus is saying, look, I want you to be my disciples to learn from me. Like, I'm the teacher I want you to learn from. I want you to have strong convictions. Well, third, Jesus doesn't forbid all discerning and evaluating of truth and error. He doesn't. We couldn't live that way. So even in this little section, Jesus warns against being led by a blind man. You're going to fall into a pit. And the blind man really is a false teacher, like pinning your hopes on somebody that's going to lead you astray. You can't do that. Furthermore, he gives instruction about the log in one's own eye, taking that out before you can help somebody else. But the point is not don't help anybody else because you have a log in your own eye. And there are people who say that. Like you'll never get the log out of your eye so you can't help anybody else. But the way Jesus says it is he says, no, take it out so you can help somebody. Like, deal, recognize you're the chief of sinners. At that point, you can be involved helpfully in the life of somebody else. But I want you involved. We have all the passages in the scripture where you have these strong statements like there's wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, there's, there's John, test the spirits. Or Jesus even calls some, like, false teachers dogs or casting pearls before swine. I mean, there's strong statements in scripture. But really, the whole scripture is about publishing the truth against error. So we're to judge between right and wrong, truth and error, to differentiate, to distinguish. It's an aspect of the image of God. We continue as believers in all aspects of life. It's an aspect of wisdom. So the Welsh preacher Jeff Thomas just says it very well. He goes, look, it's a sin to be naive. Like, you don't want to be naive. You don't want to be gullible. You don't want to be taken in. You don't want to just accept everything everybody gives you. I mean, you wouldn't do that in across the board, or you can do that in the most important things. Yet our relativistic culture, which again denies objective, transcendent truth, elevates one value above all values. And you know what that value is, one virtue above all virtues, and that's tolerance. So it's a, it's a certain kind of tolerance, however. Given there's no real truth, one must do or say, one must not do or say anything that another group would find offensive defined by that group. Is it offensive to me? Is it offensive to me? You can't do that in our culture. So I think that's really the reason our culture likes this verse so much. Don't judge. You know, don't offend me. You have your truth. I have my truth. Don't critique. So we don't judge anyone, evaluate, or critique, or contradict anyone else's beliefs or values. So in our culture, everything is to be tolerated except one thing, which is taboo, which is a sin above all sins, is it anything that appears intolerant? Like if you had deeply held convictions, it's intolerant. So our tolerant culture ends up being oppressively intolerant. It's an enforced tolerance. And so we have this across the stage. We have this outrage, this shaming, this cancel culture tried in the court of public opinion. Well, so what does Jesus mean by it then if it doesn't mean those three things? Well, first, what Jesus does mean is his main point is he opposes this spirit of censoriousness. It's a big word. It used to be used a lot more, but it's a spirit of censoriousness. And censoriousness means to be just hypercritical of people or to be a self-righteous fault finder or a harshly condemnatory and so the idea in this passage would be our eyes are wide open to the sins of others and the failures of others while being blind to our own, like we're blind people. 
Thus, Jesus' illustration of the blind man is illustration of this big log in your eye. Like, you can't even see clearly because your vision is tapped over because of your own sin. And really, the idea of censoriousness is you've just usurped Jesus' role as judge. So you just, like, removed Jesus from the seat and you, and you got on his judgment seat. And so you've let your inner litigating attor- attorney go, go haywire. And it doesn't take much, does it, for that inner litigating attorney to start pulling out that magnifying glass and, and assessing what somebody else has done and marshalling a case and accumulating evidence and taking people to trial and condemning them. It happens like that. Fallen man, it happens like that. I'm astounded how quickly it happens in my life. And so automatic. And it, 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 so censoriousness would be very negative to think the worst of people, like to be hard to please, to require people to meet your standard. Like you have this standard and people got to measure up to it, to do things your way, to be ready to say to somebody, I told you so. Like you're, you're always ready to say that. We see how quickly that comes out. We pick people apart. We don't give them the benefit of the doubt. We suspect motives. We're just not charitable. We don't ask. Maybe there are other factors involved here that I don't see. That's a censorious spirit. It infects so much of the way we relate with one another. Well, from that, second, Jesus supposes valuing people by appearances and worldly criteria. So Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, from now on I regard no one from a worldly point of view. And I love that verse. You know, how, how quickly I regard people from a worldly point of view. He said, I don't see people in a worldly way. I see it through the lens of Christ. And so James 2, for example, he calls this the sin of partiality. So he paints a scene. This rich guy, well-dressed, comes into your church. You treat him like royalty. All this deference. Whereas this poor, shabby-dressed guy comes into your church, and you're like ignoring, like nobody pays any attention to him. And implicitly, what you've done is you've taken him to trial on the criteria of his wealth or his success. He's not worth your time. And so this really extends this verse a lot, this judge not verse a lot. So we think of all the ways we value and esteem people, all the little ways we size people up. We enter a room and figure out who we want to spend time with, who we want to talk to, and we do so by looks, by success, by, you know, a host of things. Are they, are they cool? Are they in the, in the crowd I want to be associated with or not? Like, and they're just criteria that are not Jesus's. It's not Jesus's upside-down kingdom. So third, judging coming from that too, Jesus opposes speaking evil of a brother. So that's James 4, 10 through 12. In James 4, 10 through 12, Jesus says, or James says, Jesus' brother, when, says when we speak evil of someone or slander or judge a brother, we're speaking evil of or slandering or judging the law. So you can't separate speaking evil of a brother from speaking evil of God's law. Like God comes into play here. So you imagine some issue comes up, there's some disagreement and issues are always coming up uh, in a community life. And so we don't like the position a brother or sister takes, so we gossip or defame him or her to others. Or even in a worse sense, maybe, you and I, we know this like disposition deep down and fallen man that we kind of like it when somebody fails or when somebody falls into sin or doesn't do right because 
then our own insecurities are kind of bolstered by the fact that they're doing worse than we are right now. We feel a little bit better. And so we kind of like talking about it. And we talk about it too much. It makes us feel better. We get to be the one who's right now and not the one who's wrong. And so James says, when you do this, you've quit being a doer of the law and you become a judge over the law. And how does that work out? Well, well, we are denying that the law applies to us. Since we've excused ourselves and we've judged someone else, that it applies to that person, that he's failed it. And so behind all of that, we have just broken the law of loving and caring for and not slandering our neighbor. Like we're above the law, it doesn't apply to us. Well, fourth, Jesus opposes picking people apart for their Christian liberty. And so that's the passage we read this morning in the Conviction of the Gospel section. That all has to do with Christian liberty. And so there are different, indifferent matters in life. And that was a huge thing in the Reformation because in the Reformation there was this criteria of what the more spiritual people wore, for example. Like you couldn't wear certain clothes and things like that. And it became an element of being a real Christian. So Paul speaks a lot about food you can eat or you know, whether you can drink or things like that. And so different Christians come to different convictions about things, whether it's food, drink, clothes, houses, music, movies, money. There's a host of things out there that we're free to use. Never in a sinful way. And we've got to guard our hearts. Never in an idolatrous way. We guard our hearts, but we're free to use them. And we'll probably come to different convictions about them in a, in a, in a group even our size. And so Paul's saying, look, don't pick your Christian brother apart by his use of Christian liberty versus yours. Or maybe your Christian brother has a different philosophy of ministry. And whereas you want to be very careful with culture, and there's a place for that, to be very careful with culture, to, to withdraw from culture, maybe your Christian brother's throwing himself into culture. Like he's all in the arts and all into music and movies and engaging different worldviews. And you're you question that, but Paul's saying, look, don't, like, you don't have to take him to court. Like, you're going to appear before the judgment seat of God. He's going to do things different than you. Don't despise him. So those are four ways in which we can apply this truth, judge not. And, and, and then we say, why should we not judge or condemn in these ways? And Jesus says, so you won't be judged or condemned. Um, evidently, Jesus takes it really seriously. There's appended a consequence. So in verse 38, for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And so the Puritan commentator Matthew Henry says, the righteous God in his judgments often observes a rule of proportion. A rule of proportion. The measure you use will be measured to you. So the sense is, to the degree you're fault-finding and hypercritical of others, you may, except for the lavish grace of God, which, praise God, you may find yourself that you're the object of fault-finding and over-criticism now in this life from other people, and even more before the judgment seat of Christ. And I sure don't want my measure of judgmentalism to be God's measure of me when I stand before Christ. I don't want that. I mean, I get afraid of that. Like, I don't want that to be the case. So the whole sin pattern is a big deal to Jesus because he doesn't want you usurping his authority, usurping his role in people's lives. 
So we say, be generous, be generous. So, I mean, this is beautiful, this section. And he says, instead of that whole attitude, forgive and you'll be forgiven. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over. We put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. And that's the law of proportion we want. Like I want to be so excessive in my grace to other people that in God's economy of dealing with me, that that would be how he treats me through people and through himself. It's stark contrast. So we are to be a merciful people, a generous people. Like that's the tone and the aroma that we get off. And so what does that mean? Well, first, we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus says, Luke 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. And forgiveness is just not easy. It's, it's, not, it's never one and done. It's a practice. It's a habit. So when someone sins against us, they've robbed us of something. They've stolen something from us, and it hurts. They've robbed us of our dignity in a way. And so the Lord's Prayer calls it, forgive us our debtors. Like there's debtors. So to forgive is to commit and keep on committing to not use an offense against an offender in thought, word, or deed, whether it's to yourself, just ruminating over your mind or to other people by gossiping about it, or to God by grumbling about that person. It's canceling a debt. And when it arises again, canceling it again, because a new circumstances is gonna rise again. It's practicing not viewing the offender through the lens of what he or she did. You know, that proclivity we have to like view you through that event or that word. So how can we live like that? Well, on the other hand, we're mindful that we're blind people, you know, and that we have logs in our eyes, like we're chief of sinners. And then on the other hand, that God is lavish in his mercy and grace to us. Well, second, how are we generous? We give people lavish grace. So when it says, you know, give and it will be given to you, good measure, pressed down, all of that, there's a picture of how people bought grain in the market. And so people would go to a good merchant and he'd have all this grain there, maybe corn, and he'd look at the customer and he'd want to give them everything that was, going, that was their due. So he'd fill up a measure, but he'd fill it up not all the way, and then he'd shake it, make sure there's no gaps that had settled down really well. Then he would fill it more until it overflowed, and he would take all this grain and just dump it in their lap, and they'd make a lap by holding out their robe and folding it like this and kind of waddling home with all this grain. And that's the picture of God just dumping lavish grace in our lap. And so the idea is that it's the sense of giving over and above what's due, of, of love covering over a multitude of sins, of thinking the best of people, of assuming good motives, of magnifying the good and minimizing the evil, of viewing our sins as worse than theirs, thus the log and the speck, of seeing our sins more clearly than theirs, thus first get the log, of Recognizing we all have feet of clay, thus the blind man, the blind woman, of being measured and moderate in our critiques of people, of working to protect people's reputations. Like all that is part of that good measure we're dumping in somebody's lap. At times we have to confront, we have to in this world, but we're careful about it. So two stories I love that mean a lot to me um, about forgiveness and grace, real fast, but 
The first is uh, from the Mississippi pastor and black and biblical justice advocate John Perkins. And John Perkins, you know, the founder of Voice of Calvary. And so his older brother, this is back in the 40s, late 40s, his older brother, who was like a father to him, fought in World War II in Germany, received the Purple Heart, decorated. He returns home from the war. He takes a date out in New Hebron, Mississippi, in South Mississippi, and a police officer yells at him for something, and he, he turns around, and the police officer clubs him. And Perkins's brother, Clyde, get, gets angry and grabs the club, and that's all the police officer needs. He steps back and shot him twice in the stomach and killed him. And John Perkins, who's in junior high at this point, he's just seething with anger. And his mother gets scared about what he's going to do, so she sends him out to California. So he grows up with other people in California, and he's an unbeliever, full of hate, full of anger. Grew up hating white people and entrenched himself. He got married, had children, began earning a living. But then through a Bible club ministry to his son, he starts reading the Bible for himself. He reads Galatians 2.20, you know, Christ living in me with all my anger. Romans 6.23, the wage of sin is death, the gift. Like Jesus took my wage of sin and he's converted, changed. He gets involved in evangelism with blacks and whites in California. And then he starts sensing God's, God's call to return home to Mississippi. So in 1960, he moves back to New Hebron and then to Mendenhall and starts Voice of Calvary Ministries. And so he's leading these evangelism meetings and tents and gathering the black community together, work on biblical justice issues, fair wages and things, and he gets further harassment from the police. Well, then he moved to Jackson in 1972, and he begins Voice of Calvary downtown Jackson. And one day he's leading this tent meeting on Lynch Street in Jackson. And he's leading this tent meeting, and it's all black people. And all of a sudden a white police officer shows up. And like this psychosomatic reaction, he's just taken back. And a lot of stuff comes back for him. And all of a sudden he realizes, wait a second, I'm a believer. I've been a believer for years, and yet I have malice in my heart. I'm angry. He was almost undone by it in the midst of preaching the gospel. And the white police officer just keeps coming back. Like every time he just shows up. And after Perkins's sermons, you know, he's looking at him. After the sermons, he'd go up and talk to him. And they'd talk about the needs in Jackson, the needs, how they can work together. And he, they built a friendship. And with mutual respect and mutual esteem. And over time, God uses just that showing up, extending grace to work on the malice in his own heart to where he's able to love and overcome those hurts in his past. And it was transformative for him and transformative to Jackson. Just that friendship of grace and forgiveness. I think of also the story of Corey Ten Boom after World War II. Remember that story, the hiding place, and her sister, you know, Betsy, was just as godly. Corey too. But so they're from Holland. They're betrayed by a neighbor, arrested, sent to the women's concentration camp of Ravensbrück, and it was just a nightmare. And all always. And so malnourished and sick, they're, they're forced every Friday, you remember the story, every Friday they're forced to strip naked and walk down a corridor past grinning male guards to the infirmary to get checked out. And one day in this humiliation, the shame of having to do this every day, all of a sudden Corey realizes, 
they stripped Jesus naked at the cross, right? And that's how we get through our trials. We were identifying with the sufferings of Christ. Well, after the war, Corey devotes herself to speaking about the gospel of a forgiving Savior. She's looking at Europe and recognizing the key to healing of Europe and the hatred and hurt in Europe is forgiveness, to, to forgive people. There's so much to forgive, especially in your own country, people that sympathized with the Germans. And she finds the land that most needs to hear of a forgiving Savior is Germany. And so she goes, she goes back to Germany. And so she's in this meeting one night speaking about the gospel of Jesus' cross, his atoning blood, grace at a church service. And all of a sudden she sees him. She sees one of those SS guards in the congregation that watched her grinning as she walked naked down a corridor. And all that humiliation, all that PTSD, all that suffering, all her sister, what happened to her, just floods her mind. She's boiling, seething with anger and vengeance and rage. And and then he walks up to her and he says, how grateful I am for your message for our line to think, as you say, all my sins are washed away. And she's looking at this guy and he holds out his hand and she freezes, she can't move. She just hate, hate. And then she thought at that moment, you know, Jesus bled and died for this guy. Like he went to hell for this guy, the real hell for this guy. To forgive him, how can I not? And she prays, Jesus, I don't have it in me. Give me your forgiveness. And slowly she's able to raise her hand and she said that as he shook his hand, the strangest thing happened. It's like this electric current passed through her to him and she felt real love for her enemy. And she discovered, as she writes beautifully, it is not our forgiveness any more than on our goodness that the world's healing hinges But on his, when he tells us to love our enemies, he gives along with the command, the love itself. Like this sermon is not about us healing the world, it's about Jesus healing the world. And that's really the whole point of this whole sermon. It's the person who's preaching it and what he's about to do. I mean, he's the teacher that blind men need. Like he's the one. See, the father leveled against him the law of proportion. Like it was measured to him, but not what he deserved, but what you deserved was measured to him. Like he volunteered to get your law of proportion at the cross. Like he never judged anybody in this way, yet he was judged by sinful man. And worse, the Father, for love of you, judged him upon that cross. All your judgmentalism was heaped upon him as, as if it were Christ. And he, he satisfied the sentence against you in order that he might give you forgiveness and lavish grace upon you. And that's the gospel. And that's the gospel behind this message and the gospel that we, we rejoice in and the gospel that bit by bit starts moving through our lives into the lives of others. We have this kind of redeemer who took that on our behalf. Praise God.